Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for your company here on ADH TV. Now remember, oh, you know all this, don't you? But you can download the free ADH app on your television phone or iPad or search ADH on the App Store or Google Play Store to download. It really is very easy. And you can watch ADH on your television by going to Apple TV or the Google Play Store. Now tonight on the program, we'll cross to our US correspondent, Peggy Grandy, like here, America has real economic problems bubbling. The runaway inflation is the number one issue for the American public. Anything else is just white noise. Last week, the price of petrol exceeded five US dollars a gallon, $1.90 a litre. For the first time, more than double the level of a year ago. Grocery prices in America have risen almost 10%. Airfares have soared 40% in a handful of months. Rents rose 5.2% across the year to May, the quickest pace in more than 20 years. Understandably, consumer confidence is down. Retail spending in America is down. And the fear of many Americans is that Joe Biden and his sidekick Kamala Harris haven't got a clue how to fix it. Everyone knows Biden is economically illiterate and indeed his huge spending measures are themselves inflationary, adding to the problem. Speaking of spendathons. Goodness me, two state budgets were handed down today, New South Wales and Queensland. The New South Wales government is kidding, I think, if they regard themselves as the better economic managers for the past week, because now they leak virtually all the detail to sections of the media in the lead up to the budget. But each headline offered another exorbitant figure. Tens of millions here, billions there. It's a tax and spend budget by a government which appears in the minds of many voters to be slowing down. The doozy is this third flagpole, which will be installed atop the Harbour Bridge at a cost of $25 million. So the Aboriginal flag can fly permanently on the landmark Sydney Harbour Bridge. 25 million? Come on, someone is kidding. I'll speak to Labor's Shadow Treasurer, Daniel Mookie, and get his verdict on all of this. Now remember, you can have your say too. Just email me, alanjones at adh.tv. I'll answer them all. Alan Jones at ADH.TV. Look, I think we can all agree that last week on the energy front has to be a wake-up call. And let's have no more humbug about the so-called science. Science as a discipline is never settled. I repeat what the former chief scientist to Barack Obama has said in his recent book, Unsettled, and I quote, leaders talk about existential threats, climate emergency, disaster, crisis, but in fact, when you actually read the literature, there is no support for that kind of hysteria. The science is insufficient to make useful projections about how the climate will change in coming decades. Much less, he said, what effect human beings will have on it. This is Professor Coonan, advisor, scientific advisor to Barack Obama and a Democrat. Well, Dr. John R. Christie is a climatologist from Alabama. And he said, quote, I've often heard that there's a consensus of thousands of scientists on the global warming issue and that human beings are causing catastrophic change to the climate system. Well, I am one scientist, he said, and there are many who think that is not true. 
Dr. Charles Wax is the former president of the American Association of State Climatologists. And he said, first off, there isn't a consensus among scientists. Don't let anybody tell you there is, unquote. So let's end the humbug of listening to the science. Those eminent scientists are not being listened to. Then there's the demonization of coal. Matt Canavan addressed that last night when he spoke to us on this program and he said, quote, when one of the world's largest energy exporters telling us we can't have electricity is like telling us that Eskimos are running out of ice. As Matt Canavan said, quote, we're obsessed with renewables. Well, instead of recognising that that obsession got us into trouble last week, Energy Minister Bowen says that what got us into the crisis, the preoccupation with renewables, must be met with the Bowen solution. We haven't invested in renewables enough. Preach the nonsense that coal is unreliable. Matt Canavan again told us last night his words, quote, write a letter to these morons to tell them that old coal-fired power stations are unreliable. Old cars are unreliable. But if you build new things, they don't break down. If coal is the problem, Matt Canavan said, shouldn't the lights be going off in Japan, Korea, India and Vietnam who rely on our coal but have invested in new coal-fired power stations, unquote. In fact, there are 345 new coal-fired power stations being built around the world as I speak. We've closed down 12 in the last decade. We don't have a deficit of renewable energy. We have been installing renewable energy at a faster rate than any other country in the world, four times greater than in Europe or North America. But renewables can't do the job. We have a deficit of reliable power. The most laughable observation last week was the Energy Minister in New South Wales, Matt Keane, saying, well, one of the problems last week was the cold weather. He obviously doesn't understand that it is winter and we do have winter every year. Matt Canavan last night made reference to the Isogo power plant in Japan, one of the most advanced in the world. The plant is two kilometres from downtown Yokohama, almost zero pollution emissions in the middle of a big city. Well, we now have a veritable communist energy policy. Bureaucrats telling us what to do. Are we incapable of learning from international experience? In Germany, with Merkel's obsession with renewables and its dependence on Russia for gas, power prices have doubled in the last two decades. Renewables can't do the job. So 30% of German households are in energy poverty. Interestingly, listen to this. Here is President Trump in 2018, addressing the United Nations General Assembly on this very issue of dependence on Russia. And this is a metaphor of the arrogance and smugness of the political class. We've got this here. Have a look at the smirks on the faces of the German delegates when President Trump prophetically warns them of the danger of dependence on Russia. Germany will become totally dependent on Russian energy if it does not immediately change course. Here in the Western Hemisphere, we are committed to maintaining our independence from the encroachment of expansionist foreign powers. Look at the smirks on their faces. Unbelievable. Well, Biden has squandered that independence and now he's headed off to Saudi Arabia to beg for help. But back to Germany. We're now told today that Germany is going to restart 
coal-fired power plants. Indeed, the German Vice-Chancellor is the leader of the Greens Party in charge of economic affairs and climate action, and he has campaigned for years to reduce fossil fuel use. He's now saying the German government will empower utility companies to extend the use of coal-fired power plants so that Germany has, quote, an alternative source of energy. Yet here we are also told today that, quote, the historic swing to the Greens, unquote, at the federal election will prevent approvals for new coal mines in Australia. What is this historic swing? The Greens got 12% of the vote. 88% of Australians didn't vote for them. They, like most politicians, need to do some homework. Bjorn Lomborg, internationally acclaimed as the president of the Copenhagen Consensus and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution within Stanford University, who's written and researched on the issue of climate change, launched a book last year called False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor and Fails to Fix the Planet. He told me in an interview I had with him, and I quote, even if the entire rich world ended all carbon dioxide emissions tomorrow, with immense misery and poverty to follow, as everything grinds to a halt, it would reduce warming by just 0.4 degrees centigrade by the year 2100, unquote. Yet governments and oppositions, universities and classrooms tell us that catastrophe awaits if we don't embrace net zero. Well, I repeat, we are the third biggest energy exporter on the planet after Russia and Saudi Arabia. We are selling coal to new coal-fired power plants overseas, but banning the construction of them in Australia. We have an energy crisis because we have a crisis in public policy. Matt Canavan is right. The campaign for net zero should be dead. It is time the nation, not just politicians, did some homework. Well, the New South Wales state budget was brought down today, as was a Queensland budget. I'll have a look at the Queensland setup tomorrow. But let me say this. Last week, as New South Wales experienced the first taste of an energy crisis, the New South Wales Energy Minister, who wants all fossil fuels abolished by 2030, was forced to go to the Governor to seek authority under the Essential Services Act to declare coal an essential service. With confidence bordering on arrogance, the Energy Minister Keane argued for more investment in renewable energy, when, as I've said repeatedly, we have a surfeit of renewable energy and a deficit of reliable energy. Well, that Energy Minister is also the New South Wales Treasurer, which I don't believe should be the circumstance. I must confess I have been around a long time. I have never read such self-indulgent comments in my life as uttered today by the New South Wales Treasurer about a budget document replete with debt and spending. Yet the Treasurer, Matt Keane, described the budget as, quote, a once-in-a-generation reform budget for the people of New South Wales, unquote. Now, forgive me, but in the language of the pub, that statement could only be described as bullshit. And then this platitudinous nonsense, quote, it invests in helping them reach their hopes and dreams for tomorrow. This is grade eight stuff. Please find me a chuck bucket. And on $330,000 a year, the Treasurer said, we're betting on our kids because we know investing in our kids and giving them a great education is what sets them up for a great life, unquote. More rubbish. 
an education system in New South Wales that doesn't come within a bull's roar of the outcomes of comparable overseas countries. An education system that's more about indoctrination than education. But then this, quote, these are investments that will deliver for families today that will also build a brighter, stronger, prosperous tomorrow, unquote. This is just cliche-ridden nonsense. Net debt set to hit $115 billion in 2025-26. That's net debt, if projections mean anything. And the budget deficit has more than tripled since the half-yearly review in December. Then it was $3.6 billion. Now it's $11.3 billion. Well, the opposition Treasury spokesman is an interesting individual. He's young. He's in the New South Wales Upper House. His name is Daniel Mookie, M-O-O-K-H-E-Y, obviously, of course, a member of the Labor Party, but he's been in the Upper House since 2015. He is the son of Indian migrants, and he was the first MP to be sworn into an Australian parliament on a Hindu religious text. He was born in Blacktown, but I like it because he does his homework. And he joins me for the first time. Daniel Mookie, thank you for your time. Uh, you're a very lucky man, Daniel, because you're part of a state which has just had delivered a once-in-a-generation reform budget. Is that how you see it? That's not how I see it, Alan. What I see is a 12-year-old government that is now spending money hands over fist uh, to solve problems that they've ignored for more than a decade because they are in fear of losing the next election. The short summary of this budget is that it's a buy now, pay later budget. $42 billion of new spending paid for by debt, 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 and then a land tax. Yes, well, I mean, $42 billion. Now, that's borrowed money, and if interest rates are going up, then the interest costs will be even more significant than otherwise being forecast. Oh, the, the interest costs that are hitting New South Wales uh, is explosive. Last year, we paid $2.5 billion worth of interest. By 25-26, we'll be paying close to $6 billion. So that's more than you spend on TAFE. On more than interest. More than is spent on TAFE, more than is spent on the whole of the police force. Now, you were born in Blacktown. I know you're an upper house member, so you don't have a specific electorate. What are you hearing out Blacktown way? These people have been to hell and back over the pandemic. Well, what I'm hearing from people in Blacktown is the same thing I'm hearing from people across New South Wales, which is their tolls are going up, their electricity prices are going up, their petrol prices are exploding, bread prices are climbing, yet their pay is staying the same. And they're going to look at all this new spending, all this borrowed money, and they're going to think that that's going to increase inflation and that's going to increase the interest rates I pay on my mortgage. That's what I think a person in Blacktown is going to feel. And I think everyone in Blacktown, as I think everyone across New South Wales, is entitled to ask Mr Perrottet and Matt Keane, why did you ignore these problems for 12 years? And now why are you putting so much debt on the state's credit card when interest rates are reaching decades like highs? Yes. Look, I'm no supporter of uh, the Reserve Bank Governor, Lowe, and I'll have a bit more to say about him later in the program. But nonetheless, there was Lowe at a major speech today arguing that we must contain spending. Does that... And you're right, because that accelerates the likelihood of interest rates going up. Does this not apply to government? Oh, it does apply to government. And I can tell you this. 
New South Wales Labor will be offsetting our spending that we take to the next election. But again, to put this into some perspective, the $42 billion whirlwind of, of spending that Dominic Perrottet unleashed is more than what Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese promised at the last federal election combined. Mm. And just repeating to our viewers, uh, the interest rate means that the New South Wales government will pay, you've got to say this slowly, more in interest payments than it spends on TAFE, more in interest payments than the entire budget for the New South Wales police. Now, Daniel, as for helping the people of New South Wales reach their hopes and dreams, am I right in saying that the Sydney CPI is rising faster than the national CPI, that's the Consumer Price Index, but wage growth is slower in New South Wales than in many other states. So out there, people are listening to this rhetoric and cliche-ridden stuff from Matt Keane saying, well, hang on, the cost of living crisis for me is getting worse. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Alan. Matt Keane might not be feeling these pressures, but lots of other people across New South Wales are. And if you pay attention to the fine print in Matt Keane's budget, what he's revealing is that no one in New South Wales should expect an increase to their real wages for at least another two years. People have been dealing with prices going up for more than a decade and their pay staying the same. But Matt Keane doesn't realise that those real wage growth won't come back for another two years. I know that Matt Green might not understand what that means for a typical working family across New South Wales, but each time everybody goes to the supermarket, they understand mm. what it is to have to buy the My same word. amount of groceries with less pay. Uh, and okay. I want to have a government in New South Wales that understands those pressures. Right. Uh, you could be the Treasurer at some point next year. What should be done if you were there now to alleviate this cost of living crisis? End the waste. Uh, what we can't afford to do is to put more debt onto the state's books, which means we cannot pay for the world's most expensive flagpole. We can't pay for more blowouts on Sydney Metro Project, which was revealed today. We can't have another stuff up like the Sydney CBD light rail, which put more than $1.5 billion of extra debt on the state's credit card. The waste has got to come to a stop. Yeah, well, I mean, there has been enormous revenue growth, hasn't there? Higher royalty taxes from the world's coal prices, but that extra revenue is being spent rather than retiring debt. Yes, and the irony is for Matt Keane, uh, no doubt coal royalties have come to the rescue of his budget. Yes. And he is predicting uh, rapid growth in revenue. He has some heroic forecasts. But the truth here is that he's taking a big gamble with the state's finances and ultimately it's the people of New South Wales who will pay. Because if he gets it wrong, if the, spe if the revenue doesn't grow as much as he's predicting, mm. then what will happen is the debt will have to Because the spending higher. has already and taken place. as you pointed place. out... Yeah, the spending has yeah, already taken place. the spending is place. baked in. Let me ask you this though, Daniel, because... As, as always, you say... Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, go on. 
No, as you say, we are already in a scenario where we yes. pay more in interest than we do for TAFE. That's it. And we will be paying nearly $2 billion more in interest mm. than we pay to fund the New South Wales Police Force. Yeah, absolutely. I want to ask a couple of questions, though. Parents, we're told, will be able to claim a $150 voucher for every child in primary and secondary school. Is that spending means-tested? Not that we can see, um, and it does look like this one-off payment what? that's meant to arrive uh, in bank accounts on the eve of the election. What? That's what it looks like. Well, 500... Now, we're not going to say no to anything that will help. $520 million... We won't say no to anything... No, no. $520 million Sorry, in toll relief. $520 million in toll relief. The toll's a mess over the next two years. But doesn't this finish up in the pockets of big outfits like Transurban? Yeah, and the policy that he announced with respect to toll relief will deliver a windfall gain to Transurban. And the mistake that Matt Keane made is that he never bothered to say to Transurban that if you're going to benefit from this largesse, then you mm. need to kick some of that money back to the taxpayers Correct. so we can give more toll relief Correct. to so many of the families that are struggling to pay these tolls. Well, $2.8 on a shared equity trial so that people could get into their first home. Is it sensible to have government taking equity in a residential property? Look, we will judge that program by its results and we'll pay close attention to the results of that trial. But the rumour going around Macquarie Street is that Matt Keane lent Anthony Albanese his vote and took his policies in exchange. And that's how we ended up with a shared equity scheme. Yes, I have to say. Look, there's one good initiative because we're running out of time. All pre-kindergarten children will have a free school year. You'd agree with that, wouldn't you? I definitely think that moving to universal pre-K is a good idea. But I would just point out that the government here in New South Wales has denied that we had a problem for three terms. Mm. And they're now saying it will take them three terms more to deliver that mm. promise. I think that I have myself a kid in pre-school uh, right now. He will be well and truly into high school before the first kid enters universal pre-school education mm. in New South Wales. Mm. Yeah, look, we could talk all night. I noticed five billion in childcare. My understanding of all of this is once the subsidies increase for childcare, the childcare costs go up. Good to talk to you, Daniel Mookie, and we will talk again. An opportunity to introduce you to our viewers. There he is, the man who could be the Treasurer of New South Wales, the Shadow Treasurer in the Chris Minns Labor Party in the Government of New South Wales. Thank you for your time, Daniel. Thanks for having me on, Alan. It's been a real pleasure. Not at all. There he is, Daniel Mookie. By the way, it is the shortest day of the year today, nine hours and 53 minutes of daylight, so it was dark long ago. The winter solstice, the tilting of the earth around the sun, means that we in the southern hemisphere will be today furthest from the sun. The longest day will be December 22, with 14 hours and 22 minutes of daylight. Look, on another matter, there have been significant changes in recent times to Australia's sedition laws. Sedition was previously defined as conduct that tends towards rebellion against the established order. It includes subversion of the Constitution, included subversion of the Constitution, or incitement of discontent towards established authority. In 2011, under Julia Gillard's administration, the sedition clauses were repealed and replaced with urging violence. What would Australians think of Adam Bant and his refusal to stand in front of the Australian flag at a press conference in Sydney on Monday? 
the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags remain. And since becoming the Greens leader in 2020, Mr Band has removed the Australian flag from behind him when conducting press conferences. Perhaps not sedition, but why would Bant want to represent Australians in the federal parliament if he's ashamed of his country? We're too soft, I think, in our condemnation of people like Bant. Bant is simply a taxpayer-funded fool. Well, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, is no fool, but he went into the weekend parliamentary elections in France calling on voters to hand his coalition, quote, a solid majority and adding, quote, nothing would be worse than adding French disorder to the world disorder, unquote. He went to the people with an ambitious program of tax cuts, welfare reform and raising the retirement age. He needed 289 seats in the 577-seat National Assembly, 289. He won 245. The socialist veteran Jean-Luc Mélenchon, with a new left-wing coalition that pulled all the political weirdos together, the socialists, the hard left, the communists and the greens, They'll have 131 seats. Big, big move by the left. And Marine Le Pen's National Rally Party, which had only eight seats in the outgoing parliament, saw its biggest parliamentary success in decades, winning 89 seats. The Conservative Les Républicains, traditionally the party of government in France, with people like Jacques Chirac and Nicolas Sarkozy, got 4% of the vote in the first round of the presidential election and will run out but did gain 61 seats, but only out of 577 at the weekend. They are greatly diminished. Well, so is Macron, and he may try to do deals with Les Républicains. There is a massive realignment in French politics. Could it be happening here? Two thirds of the electorate, remember, did not want the party that is currently the Albanese government. But back to the mess in France, voters have punished Macron and his ensemble alliance. At best, he will be presiding over a minority government that will have to enter into negotiations with opponents bill by bill. And if there's no agreement, then the result will be political paralysis for the second biggest economy in the Eurozone. On top of that, Macron presides over a deeply unhappy and divided country where support for the populist parties of the right and the left has surged. As I said, Marine Le Pen, with eight seats in the outgoing parliament, has now won 89, and the 70-year-old socialist veteran, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and his new leftist NUPS coalition got 131 seats. As it stands, therefore, we have a French president with increasingly diminishing parliamentary authority, or as the leftist Mélenchon told his cheering supporters, the rout of the presidential party is total and there will be no majority, unquote. Well, that's probably half true, but nonetheless, a stack of French government ministers have lost their seats. Macron's supporters, the health minister, the maritime minister, the environment minister, Amélie de Nonchalant, who is a pillar of Macron's administration, all, them have lo- all those people have lost. The parliamentary speaker is gone. The former interior minister has been beaten and they were close allies of Macron. One of the most interesting results on the left was a lady, Rachel Kiki, a former chambermaid who campaigned for better working conditions at her hotel. She defeated Mr Macron's former sports minister. The disillusionment in France is borne out by the fact that in a nation where voting is not compulsory 
and I believe voting should never be compulsory. Fewer than 50% of those entitled to vote turned up. Could there be new elections? It's a humiliating result for Emmanuel Macron, who now has massive domestic problems on his plate when he has sought to play a prominent role in Europe, seeing himself as a key statesman in the European Union. Well, the Macron halo has fallen. He is now a diminished figure. Well, let's bring in, as we do every Tuesday, the splendidly informed former executive assistant to the former American president, Ronald Reagan, Peggy Grandy. And in America, as in Australia, the economy is all the talk. So, Peggy, thank you for your time. But people say that when America sneezes, Australia gets the flu. Joe Biden campaigned on a slogan, Build Back Better. He would end the pandemic, he said, and the restrictions. And on the other side of the pandemic, America would be stronger and richer more electric cars, less dependence on fossil fuels, improved infrastructure and high wages. Peggy, is it build back better or build back broke? Well, thank you, Alan, for always having me on. And I'm sorry that we're sneezing our bad policy ideas all over you. We see nothing but build back broker. And this government is overspent. It's causing the inflation. And they're waving their hands at the problem, acting like they don't know what to do. The American people know what to do, and it's reverse course. But it seems like this administration is unwilling to do so. So it's making people think maybe this is a feature of the plan, not a flaw of the plan. The American people are getting very worried and concerned that this administration seems not to know or want to pivot in a positive direction. This is building us all back broker. Yes. I mean, Kevin Hassett, I saw comments from him, the former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisers, and he said, quote, we're looking right now at a calamity, something quite unlike anything we've seen in our lifetime. Peggy, is that how you see it and other Americans are seeing it? Absolutely. And they're not only changing course, they're doubling down and they're playing the blame game. They're acting like they are not causing the problem. So they're trying to blame Republicans who aren't even in power. They're blaming Putin, who a lot of these problems happened before he even invaded Ukraine. And in some instances, they're even blaming the consumer ourselves. So this this administration is totally out of touch. And then you have people like Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, who is saying, well, we're not sure we're headed into a recession. I think it's just an economic slowdown when everybody else is saying, if we're not in a recession already, one is imminent. Mm. And these are the same people who told us that government spending would not cause inflation and then said, oh, well, we underestimated it or we were misguided. Mm. So mm. This, this White House does not have a messaging problem. They have a public policy policy problem. Absolutely. And it's the same here, I've got to say. Public policy, the big issue, like inflation there in your country is 9% in the year to May. That's the fastest growth since 1981. Peggy, do Americans believe the Biden administration, to put a simple question, you most probably already answer this, steer America through the crisis? I mean, the stock market is down 20% since January. And for the benefit of our Australian viewers, I mean, consumer confidence in America is at its lowest level since the 1940s, the price of petrol has exceeded $5 a gallon, more than double what it was a year ago. Grocery prices have risen by 10%. The price of eggs by 30%. Airfares are up 40%. And the average interest rate on a 30-year home loan has risen almost 6.3%, the highest since 2008. Does the, does the Biden administration just 
raise their hands and say, oh, well, that's, it is as it is, and let's get on with things. They don't seem to have any answers to any of this. Well, of course they could fix it. Joe Biden is arguably the most powerful man in the world. All the people who work for him have that power behind them, and they've chosen not to exercise it in a way that benefits the American people. And what's worse is they're pretending like the American people don't know what's going on, and they're trying to tell them, oh, it's not as bad as you think. But the American people are smarter than that. They see the price of gas, the price of food, the lack of baby formula, the wide open border, crime on our streets, and they know who's to blame for all of these policy failures years. And they're going to help start holding this party and that president accountable starting in November. Yes, I know. I mean, you don't see any evidence that Biden in his, I mean, he fell off a bike, let's be honest, that he intellectually is on top of any of this, let alone able to articulate what is the answer. I mean, retail spending last month was down on the previous month, but there are some on the side of the government saying, well, people are running out of money. Wages growth, is less than inflation. So if that's the case, the buyer, the consumer, the battler is running out of money, isn't he? Right. And remember, we were told that Joe Biden was going to be the most experienced, the most unifying, the best president that we've ever had, and that the team he would bring around him to the White House would be able to solve all the ills of the Trump presidency. We are seeing the exact opposite. And not only do I worry about Joe Biden's capacity to make decisions, look at the people that he has surrounded yes. himself with. Not yes. one of them gives me confidence yes. for the American people. Yeah. And I mean, just wrapping this up, I mean, it gets worse for the Democrats. Doesn't it heading towards November? It's not far away, and the midterm elections. So, what do you make of all of that? Before I ask you a question about this Myra Flores. Well, people vote with their pocketbook. They vote about kitchen table issues and people around the kitchen tables all over America are very worried about the direction of America. So if their wallet is causing them to vote, yep. they are not going to be voting yep. Democrat. No, they'll smash them. Well, a metaphor of this, Peggy, surely is this Myra Flores, who's a Republican, can you believe it, in the deep blue south of Texas. She's won a special election for Texas's 34th congressional district, which had been held by the Democrats since 1870. Now, that region's been devastated by Biden's border crisis, which has turned off many Hispanic voters. But surely this is a metaphor of the political direction that the voter is taking in America. Well, I don't think any Democrat seat is going to be safe after that rocking win, um, a seat that hadn't gone red in over 150 years. And, you know, the polling is showing that only 24 percent of Hispanics are, are supporting Joe Biden and only 30 percent nationwide. Hispanics, for the most part, are in favor of legal immigration, but not in favor of illegal immigration. And unfortunately, the border communities that are predominantly Hispanic, they're the ones that are suffering most with this open open border. Yeah. The crime, the lack of services, yeah. people who are unvetted coming across the border. Right. And so they're suffering the consequences and, and Kamala, of it. And they sent a shockwave to Kamala, Washington Kamala Harris, by electing Mary. Kamala Harris was supposed to solve all that. She didn't even go down there. I mean, one correspondent said, I'll note the language, there is a political earthquake happening in Latino politics in South Texas. I mean, it seems that doesn't Peggy, the Democrats are in trouble everywhere. And this is just a metaphor of the problem. Can I just come to Hillary Clinton just on the Democrats? She says she won't run for president in 2024. Is she to be believed? 
<laughs> well, we know that Hillary Clinton is always waiting on the wings for her to be called onto the stage and take the spotlight. So I wouldn't believe that. I think she's waiting to be begged. And we'll see if that happens. It, it's sad when you think that Hillary Clinton might be the Democrats' best option. But Joe Biden certainly is not going to run, but he can't say that now. He'd be a lame duck. And the Democrats are just trying to find a way to scuttle Kamala Harris and haven't figured that out yet. Yes, I mean, she said that, she, which is a joke, isn't it? Hillary Clinton expects Biden to run for re-election. Now, we know anything can happen in politics, but and Kamala Harris is out of it. Just for our viewers, Buttigieg, is he a legitimate candidate? No, he's not. He, If he is the savior of the Democratic Party, they've got troubles. Because if you look at our supply chain issues and all of our transportation, especially airline disruptions that we've had, all of those fall right on the plate of the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. And he's playing the blame game as well. He's deflecting blame every place else. Real leaders rise up and solve problems. We're not seeing that out of Pete Buttigieg. So I don't think he's going to be a good option for the Democrats. If so, they're looking for someone to solve the problems so, they're creating. So, I mean, you've been in this scene for a long, long time. Do you think, and you alluded to this before, do you think Hillary Clinton is waiting to be conscripted? Well, I think that she's saying, no, no, I wouldn't have any interest in doing that. But everything that she's doing, she's out still on book tours and speaking tours. You know that she's just making herself available and um, she would definitely take that call if it came to her. Just on Saudi Arabia, uh, Biden must sense trouble because he's going to the Middle East in July to meet Saudi's crown, crown prince, Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Now, that breaks a campaign pledge. He said he'd make Saudi Arabia a pariah. And only weeks after taking office, Biden shifted US policy on Saudi Arabia over their human rights record and, of course, the killing and dismembering of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey in 2018. Where, what, what, does the, what do the American people make of this? Well, if you remember under Donald Trump, America was energy independent, and we understood the strategic importance of the Middle East, especially Saudi Arabia. Now under President Biden, America is energy dependent, and he's made a total mess of our relationships all across the Middle East, which um, the Abraham Accords really had the Middle East in a peaceful place like they hadn't been in a long time under Donald Trump. So I don't understand, and the American people don't understand why it's okay to go and beg Saudi Arabia and even Venezuela to drill more oil when we've got lots of people here in the United States who would love to have permission to drill more oil. So they're very con confused by this. And we've Joe Biden this. is not going to fare well there. Now, well, we've got that problem here, uh, Peggy. We've got stacks of energy, one of the leading energy suppliers in the world. We export it all and there's nothing available to us. But nonetheless, Biden did say in 2019 when he was a candidate, he'd make Saudi Arabia, quote, pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. So his trip to the region is at odds with his promise to put human rights at the heart of US foreign policy. Well, this is what happens when you cozy up to Iran. And this administration going back into the Iran deal has put them at odds with Saudi Arabia. And Joe Biden has really painted himself into a corner. He has said that we're going to have to go through this painful time of transition to green energy. And so 
this painful time he's admitted to the American people. And so now he's feeling the pain himself politically, and he's trying to do little things to fix it, but doesn't want to do too much. So he's doing things like releasing oil from the strategic oil reserve, which was never meant to fix bad policy. It was meant to be saved for a global disaster. And he's releasing it a little bit at a time, which won't fix the problem. The problem is easily solved. We drill more oil here at home. We finish the Keystone Pipeline. We drill in Anwar. We have more than enough oil to produce, to provide to America and to sell to our allies all over the world. Absolutely. And what Peggy has just said there is redolent of where we are here. Basically, Biden can solve everything at home before prevailing on Saudi Arabia. Australia can solve everything at home if we stop the demonization of coal-fired power and fossil fuels. Peggy, always good to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. And thank you for your understanding of these issues. We appreciate it very much. See you next week. Thank you, Alan. This is Peggy Grandy in America. Look, one of the virtues of this program is that you can rest assured I'll say things as they are, not as some might like them to be. There are many protected species in Australia, native birds, reptiles, amphibians, mammals, except the dingo, some fish species, the mountain pygmy possum or the regent honey eater, even the orange bellied parrot. The most endangered species, we're told, is the koala. But when I checked all of this out last night, protected species, the one name that didn't appear was Philip Lowe, or as he'd like to be called, Dr. Philip Lowe, the governor of the Reserve Bank. Last week, not for the first time, I pointed out this fellow no longer deserved protection. He should be gone from the job. I made the point that the central bank over which he presides has a simple mandate, and that is to secure the stability of the financial system. But as I reminded you, this is the person whose judgment, I wouldn't call it scholarship, is so flawed that he said only last November, and I quote, it's still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024, unquote. He also said, I find it difficult to understand why rate rises are being priced in the next year or in early 2023, unquote. Yet here we are with rate rises on the march. Indeed, addressing an American Chamber of Commerce event in Sydney today, the same Dr Lowe warned that Australians should prepare for higher interest rates. And last week he said it's unclear at the moment how far interest rates need to go up, unquote. Is that so, Dr Lowe? Is this your latest blinding insight, not available to you last November, when you told us that in all probability there would be no increase in the cash rate before 2024? To my viewers, I say this. Make no mistake, the crisis with inflation and interest rates is a direct consequence of failed monetary policy by a so-called independent reserve bank. Well, thankfully, this has brought a few people out of the woodwork. Speaking at an Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees Investment Conference on Wednesday last week, one economist, Dr Matthew Peter, criticised the central bank over its, quote, appalling communication on inflation and the need to lift rates higher, unquote. Dr. Peter said tellingly, the last thing we need is dithering, particularly from the monopolist on the money supply, namely the Reserve Bank, that determines our interest rates, unquote. He echoed what I have said. We can handle it if you get it wrong, but what we can't handle is not being certain about what you think you're going to do over the next little while, unquote. 
Now, remember this protected species, Philip Lowe has said, quote, it's unclear at the moment how far interest rates will need to go up, unquote. Well, how does business make responsible decisions in that environment? Well, enter the most successful federal treasurer in recent memory, Peter Costello, who's joined with trenchant criticism of the protected species, Dr Lowe and the Reserve Bank. When Mr Costello said last week, quote, the bank completely missed the surge in inflation, heightening the risk of recession with its worst monetary policy failure in three decades, unquote. As I've indicated to you, thankfully, the new Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, will order an independent review of the Reserve Bank, the first since the 1980s. Peter Costello said he had believed as far back as the March quarter that inflation was an emerging problem. Mr Costello's words, quote, unlike a lot of the Johnny-come-latelys who only recently became RBA critics, said Peter Costello, the RBA completely missed the takeoff point in the March quarter, and now it's behind the curve, unquote. He said, its primary duty is to manage the 2 to 3% inflation target, and it failed in that duty, unquote. I repeat the point I made last week. The central bank mandate is to secure the stability of the financial system. And in as many words, Peter Costello made the point that stability has been jeopardised by bad policy, bad judgment. Peter Costello said of the Reserve Bank, quote, it is the worst failure in monetary policy since the 1990s, and the consequences are that the RBA now has to raise interest rates faster and further than otherwise would be the case, unquote. Mr Costello didn't balk when he said last Friday, quote, so why did it go wrong? And what should we do to ensure it won't happen again, unquote? Well, my answer to that is, under the current leadership of the Reserve Bank, we have no such guarantee. Dr Lowe is now everywhere saying inflation's too high and monetary policy will be tightened. That is, jacking up interest rates for the wretched first-home buyer who believed Dr Lowe last November and borrowed money, which, if assurances hadn't been given by the Reserve Bank that the first increase in the cash rate may not be before 2024, the first home buyer may never have taken the borrowing plunge. Now we have inflation climbing beyond 5%, twice what the Reserve Bank's inflation target is, and the Reserve Bank can't tell us where this might end. But, quote, Australians need to be prepared for high interest rates, unquote. Now look, you can mess around with language all you like, but I say again, the borrowing public have been rankly deceived by Lowe and the Reserve Bank. If the Governor, Dr Philip Lowe, is not replaced, one must be left with the conclusion that he is one of Australia's most expensive protected species. Well, now look, before we go, is it too much to ask Australian politicians to prioritise the needs of Australian citizens? Or is the concept of putting Australians first frowned upon today? Wherever I go, people come up to me and explain the hardships they're facing, whether it's the rising cost of living, not being able to afford to turn the heater on during winter, or not being able to find staff. There's a myriad of economic issues which hardworking Australians face every day. The cost of petrol's another. Same with groceries. Then we have a Reserve Bank whose utterances, as I've said, are wrong most of the time not to mention their incapacity to manage the looming inflation problem. So, the bottom line is, we have issues here at home. The Albanese government must start addressing these problems and drop anything that isn't Australia first. 
So what are we to make of the Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, committing $50 million in aid for Sri Lanka's economic crisis? Hang on a minute. $50 million given to a country which has a government riddled with corruption and nepotism. Not only that, we learned that the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, arrived in Sri Lanka yesterday to meet with President Godabaya Rajapaksa. How any Australian government can support the Rajapaksas, I have no idea. They initially ruled Sri Lanka from 2005 to 2015. During the five-year hiatus, 2015 to 2020, the constitution was changed to ensure that presidential powers were trimmed, such as limiting presidential terms to two and creating independent oversight bodies. Well, the Rajapaksas objected to these democratic changes and launched a relentless political comeback. Their changes have meant creating an executive presidency that granted this Gotabaya control over the appointment of ministers, judges, and the heads of various nominally independent commissions, and of course appointed half his family to those posts. These people are all about themselves. Instead of sending 50 million of taxpayers' money to these crooks, why don't you give the 50 million to something which will help Australians? What about the flood victims in Lismore? Give the town of Lismore the 50 million to rebuild. The reason there's civil unrest in Sri Lanka is because the public have woken up to the fact that the Rajapaksas are to blame for the dire economic situation where Sri Lanka is broke. They've reduced reserves to just about $50 million, stalling imports and causing massive shortages of food, fuel and medicine. The country can no longer service its foreign debt. But what about this? A statement from Penny Wong says, this financial aid will have a strong emphasis on helping women and girls. How do we know that? These are just vacuous words. This is a country which is governed by a crooked family who has the military on their side, is cosy with the Chinese Communist Party and is comfortable with the persecution of religious minorities. These people are no angels. And if they love the Chinese Communist Party so much, ask China for the $50 million. Penny Wong, you're walking down Sideshow Alley. Get on the phone to bring Julian Assange home. Not this rubbish. That's it from me tonight. I'll see you tomorrow night on ADH TV. Good night.